Do you hear this noise? In 1999, we had never heard anything like this before. Don't think we even really understood what was happening. There had been hard hitters of the ball before, but no one hit it as hard or as often as Lance Klusner. Years later, Ricky Ponting would tell me that just watching him range hit felt like the game was changing right in front of them. South Africa had been dominating ODI cricket in this period. They had an endless supply of all-rounders, so much so that it took an age to work out what Klusner could actually be for them. By 1999, we knew this was a special team and that he was a next-level player. He took three wickets in South Africa's first match. They were Tendulkar, Dravid, and Azaruddin. And the game was almost over when he came out to bat. India had made 253, and South Africa needed 27 runs with five wickets in hand and 26 balls. India were behind, but they still had a chance. Then they didn't. Straight outside off stump, and there's a free hit. Look at that. Four runs from the full toss. Now that's typical Klusner. No messing. He's had two deliveries hit, both for four from two different bowlers. Full toss again, but uh, that beats cover. I was going to say that will only be one, but he hits the ball so hard, Jacques Klusner. He made 12 of four, and at this point in ODI cricket, a low full toss was thought to be pretty much as good as a Yorker. By the end of the 1999 World Cup, when bowling to Lance Klusner, no one thought that. Lance Klusner was a one-man evolutionary force, and 1999 was his and cricket's Big Bang. Welcome to Double Century, the podcast about the history of cricket. This season, we are celebrating the Cricket World Cup. This is the last episode in our series, and it's about the 1999 World Cup. South Africa's next match was against Sri Lanka. The top order were as slow as anything, and outside of Cullinan's 49 from 82 balls, no one actually made that many runs. South Africa actually just kept sending up other players instead of Klusner, partly because they just had such a long batting lineup. So that meant that Klusner was in at number nine. At that point, South Africa were 115 for seven, and they were looking like losing this second match. Then he came in. So Lance Klusner not wasting any time at all, and he's got off the mark with a boundary eventually. And it wasn't just a boundary, it was against Murali. That's beautifully struck, and that is absolutely dead straight. Smack. <laughs> Just a fraction short. It was again the attempt to get the Yorker in there. That's a big hit. Nicely placed two. One bounce skidding into the crowd. Full toss. That's going to go in much the same direction, but just that bit further. Straight down the ground. Will it carry? Yes, it does. Well, what a way both to finish the innings off and to pass the 50 mark individually. Lance Klusner moves on to 52, not out, from 45 deliveries. He was simply playing a different game. Of course, Sri Lanka needed only 200, and they had a real chance of passing that, but they kept losing regular wickets. And then it was Klusner who ended the innings, taking three for 21. South Africa played England next. Stop me if you've heard this before, but their top order was batting slow. This time, Klusner came in at number seven at least. Oh, that's up in the stands. 
And that's what that misfield caused. His innings was 48 not out from 40. No one else in the match had a strike rate more than 75, and he hit at 120. England lost heaps of wickets in the chase, and one of them would be to Klusner, who took one for 16 from his six overs. South Africa played Kenya, who got off to a pretty good start and was 66 for one. Klusner then ripped through their batters, taking five for 21. He was so good with the ball, he finally wasn't needed with the bat. South Africa were now 4-0, and and this surprised no one. They would lose their next match to Zimbabwe, which is a game we covered in the previous episode. But it is worth mentioning that again from this game, South Africa were not scoring very fast. Cullinan made 29 from 67, and then Klusner was not out with another 50, and he scored it from 58 balls. You could argue that South Africa lost, but Klusner did not. Importantly though, South Africa were in the Super Sixes now, and their first match was against Pakistan who, as we also covered in the previous episode, lost to an underdog in Bangladesh in the final match of their round robins. All the Pakistani batters got starts, but it wasn't until Moen Khan played a blinder of 60 from 56 that Pakistan ended up with 220 and Klusner took one wicket. Again, South Africa got off to a slow start and they also lost wickets. They moved Klusner down to number 8 and 135 for 6. He came out with just under 15 overs to go. Klusner was not out again, this time making 46 from 41. He was simultaneously scoring fast and not being dismissed. After his five innings in this World Cup, he had scored 210 runs from 188 balls. Cricket had never seen hitting like this, and had never seen consistent fast scoring like this, and had never seen one player take a starring role with the bat so far down the order, and also take as many wickets as this. The whole thing was mad. Finally, Klusner was promoted against New Zealand, and sadly, he actually failed. But without him to save them, South Africa actually stood up and made 287. In the chase, New Zealand lost regular wickets. Klusner took the danger man Chris Cairns, and then later Roger Tews to clinch the match. I would say that this was his worst game of the World Cup. And for what Klusner was, a lower order hitter and fifth bowler, this was still a well above par match. By this point, they had already won the World Cup in 1987 by actually preparing and thinking about how to win. In 1992, they had bombed out in their home tournament, but they bounced back in 96 until Aravinda destroyed them. But they had been a major force in ODI since 1987, but not quite the finished product. But coming into this World Cup, South Africa was clearly the better team. They had won 78% of their matches since the 96 tournament, and Australia was barely over 50%. In fact, compared to Australia, Pakistan and Sri Lanka both had better win rates. South Africa built most of this on the fact that their bowlers took a lot of wickets. Their bowlers averaged four runs less per wicket than the second best team. They averaged three and a half more per wicket when batting than Australia, who were also number two. And remember, the Aussies were already looking on Klusner in awe. But they had also copied the team's style. Within Australian cricket, South Africa were always seen as incredibly talented, but too defensive to take full advantage of it. The thought of copying them was very bizarre. But when South Africa moved Alan Donald away from the new ball, it was a masterstroke for that team. It meant that Steve Elworthy, who hilariously would go on to plan most of the ICC tournaments for most of the last decade and a half, would take the new ball with Sean Pollock, so you had two good tall seamers at either end. And then at first change, instead of a let-up, you had white lightning Alan Donald. 
Australia believed in this plan so much that they moved Glamagra away from the new ball. And it was a disaster. I don't think Australia really thought about it because they were taking a seamer away from the new ball, not a swing bowler with the Dukes balls. Anyway, after three games, Australia were one and two, and their only win was against Scotland. They made 213 against New Zealand after Jeff Allett took 37 for four. The left arm seamer only played 41 matches for New Zealand, but he is the best trivia answer if someone asks you who along Shane Warne took the most wickets in the 1999 World Cup. McGrath took one wicket, but he looked utterly lost and went at nearly five runs and over. So Australia had the best opening bowler in ODI history, and he was now a first change bowler, so Adam Dale, who was a Nike executive from Melbourne, could take the new ball. The next game, Australia tried Paul Rifle instead of Dale, which made a lot more sense. But McGrath had another poor match and ended up with one for 54 from his 10, as Inzamam al-Haq made 84 and Pakistan made 275. Wasim Akram took the new ball, unlike his Aussie goat friend, and Adam Gilchrist was out in the first over. Australia took the game deep until Wasim took McGrath, and Australia were 10 runs behind. Australia won the next match against Bangladesh. McGrath opened the bowling and took the two openers for single figures. But Australia had one more game to win to qualify. The West Indies opened up at Old Trafford and faced McGrath with a new ball. Sherwin Campbell, Jimmy Adams and Brian Lara all made single figures. McGrath took them all with the new ball again. West Indies limped, and I really and truly mean that, to 110 all out from 46.4 overs. Ridley Jacobs carried his bat, the first to do so in a World Cup. But he only made 49 from 142 balls. It was a torturous innings. But that was nothing compared to what followed. Australia actually struggled early on because the pitch was tough to bat on. Ricky Ponting made 20 from 56 balls, his slowest ODI innings. But the real fun came when Michael Bevan and Steve Waugh survived some tough chances and close balls and got Australia to 92 for four after 28 overs. Remember, they only needed 111 to win. After 31 overs, they were also still on that score of 92. At that stage, Steve Waugh hit a boundary from a short ball from Rion King. There was also a misfield in that over as well, so they took a couple more. Not long after that, they passed the 100 mark. And that is when Australia stopped scoring. Australians want to take two through. I really do have that feeling. Oh, they certainly want to do that, take two points into the Super Sixes. And I think you're quite right. That's what they're doing here. They're going to stretch this as long as they can. The rain's lifted. It's reasonably fine. 20 overs left. Well, um, there's a little bit of booing going on here, but I really don't think they know what's happening. They don't understand that this is working for the Australians in the next round. The longer they take, the more chance the West Indies have of going through, the tougher it is for New Zealand. They took 12 overs to score the final 17 runs with two of their greatest players of all-time batting. Phil Simmons' little medium paces went for two runs in three overs. Eventually, the West Indies almost had to give the game to Australia just to get off the field. That's it. No ball called, and uh, that's the end of proceedings. So Australia have um, won this match. It's been uh, a pretty slow, drawn-out match. New Zealand had to play one more game after this against Scotland. And it was them that Australia was actually trying to take out of the World Cup by batting that slow. But the Kiwis bowled Scotland out for 121, and they needed to pass that total in 21.2 overs to qualify over the Australia-assisted West Indies. New Zealand got the runs in 17.5 overs. All of Australia's blocking was in vain. 
They lost the points that they were trying to take through to the Super Sixes, and the Kiwis still got through. However, it didn't matter much because Australia played their first Super 6 game and made 282. McGrath opened again for Australia, and by the seventh over, he had Azaruddin, Dravid, and Tendilka. AJ Dadeja made a consolation 100, but they never got close to the Aussies. Australia then beat Zimbabwe, as we heard in the last episode, which meant that they were 2-3 and three in the Super 6 stage, and all they had to do is beat South Africa. Altogether, though, South Africa had won six matches and only lost once in the tournament. And not only could South Africa send Australia out of the tournament, they could also ensure that Zimbabwe would have made the semi-finals because they had a point from their washout against New Zealand. So it certainly wasn't a dead rubber, but it's a strange game because Australia had to win it to make the finals and South Africa had to treat this like a final because beating Australia made them winning the tournament far more likely. For the first time since McGrath retook the new ball, he didn't actually take early wickets. Because of that, Herschel Gibbs made 100. Oh, cracking shot. Poor delivery, put away. Oh, good shot. Free hit, but beautifully played. Nicely struck. All the way over the boundary at long off for six. That's another big hit. That's beautifully picked up. Beautiful hit, straight down the ground. Six more runs. Got him, Gibbs yorked. Gibbs made 101 from 134 balls, so South Africa needed some hitting after that wicket. Enter Lance. Around the wicket. Guzner goes thump, and it goes for four. It's in the air. Martin, back, 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 it's gone. It's six. He's a magnificent hitter of the ball. Kluzner would make 36 from 21, pulling South Africa to a decent 271. The only good thing for Australia is that they were the second team to dismiss the big man. His average dipped all the way down to 123. Australia started poorly. Mark Wall was run out and Steve Elworthy took Adam Gilchrist and Damian Martin to leave the Aussies at 48 for three. At this point, Australia had Ricky Ponting and Steve Wall together. Australia had to rebuild, and they stopped scoring for some time, scoring 15 runs in eight overs. Then Wall went on the attack. Well, that's an excellent shot. That breaks the shackles. Stephen Moore goes for it, but it goes all the way. So it's gone, that'll be six, over it goes. That meant with one ball to go in the 31st over, Australia were 152 for three. They just clawed themselves back in front. And what happened next was, well... I suppose still one of the most famous things to ever happen in cricket. That's how she's oh, got he's it. He dropped it. I don't believe it. That's unbelievable. He was throwing it up. He thought he had it. It was a little lollipop. And the man who did so well with the bat has taken his eye off the ball and the ball has just dribbled out of his fingers. He was about to throw it up. Well, this could change the course of this match. Let me just try and walk you through this. Lance Kluzner came into bowl because obviously he's involved in almost every part of the 99 World Cup, and he speared a straight full-length ball in at the pads. Steve Waugh tried to clip it across to mid-wicket, but it went straight to one of the world's best fielders, Herschel Gibbs, who takes the catch. But as he tries to flick the ball up, the ball just sort of drops out of his fingers. If anything, it looked like he was throwing it up with his right hand, but that the ball got stuck with his left fingers, and then it just rolls forward. Gibbs instantly tries to take the ball again. Instead, it hits the ground. You can see in some of the footage that Steve Waugh looks over to Herschel Gibbs and he mouths something. The phrase you probably have heard is, you've just dropped the World Cup. 
What War actually said was just as ice cold, but a little bit more in the moment. Do you realize you've just cost your team the match? What War didn't know was that Gibbs had actually also cost his team the World Cup. A couple of overs later, Klusner bowled the same delivery. This time, War smashed it past Gibbs on the ground to the boundary. And he's gone for Alan Dong. Welcome to the crease, Alan. Oh, he hasn't waited for that. That's gone. That's six. Well, that's it. That's a magnificent century. He is a fantastic cricketer. There is no doubt that Steve Waugh was a fantastic cricketer. But this was also only his second 100 in 256 matches. Now, early on, he had batted down the order and was playing more as an all-rounder. Later, he would be at number five or number six. Still not a place you'd expect to see a lot of hundreds. But Steve Waugh was a fantastic ODI player. He could bowl at the death and bat at number five. But he was not a great ODI batter, averaging 33 at a strike rate of 76. Decent, but certainly not incredible. The South Africans had actually sledged him about his conversion rate during this innings. But by the end, he was not playing like the old Steve Waugh. He was slog-sweeping fast bowlers like the kind of batter he would usually look down on. The man who rebuilt his career through defying himself pleasure suddenly became the lustiest batter in the world. And this innings was at once his masterpiece and also his guilty pleasure. One to win, three balls to go. And that's it. Australia have won a vital match which has ensured that they will go through to the semi-finals and what's more, they'll play South Africa again. Steve Waugh has played a magnificent innings and have a look at the celebration. Four days later, these teams played again. The great Rob Smythe called it an unimprovable game. In his piece about this match, he says, Warren was part of an ensemble cast to die for. There were present and future greats on both sides, from Alan Donald and the War Brothers to Ricky Ponting and Jacques Callis. Between them, the two 11s would end their ODI careers with 4,584 caps, 106,188 runs, and 2,630 wickets. None would experience anything to compare with the match that was career-defining for many of the losers, never mind the winners. To start, it was Pollock on a tear. Australia was 68 for four after it had looked like Ponting would make a mess of the South Africans. At this point, Australia had Steve Waugh in again. But this time, it was with Michael Bevan, the man with the highest batting average in ODI cricket at that point. Essentially, the captain and the man who saved Australia more than anyone else started their rebuild, scoring six runs in 8.4 overs. Wall was 16 from 46 balls. Bevan, 8 from 40. Weirdly enough, their defensive batting against the West Indies finally came in handy. But then Wall started to put the pressure back on. Elworthy to Wall. Stroke over the top, and that's going to be four. And again, tremendous stroke from Steve Waugh. And there he goes over the top. It's a short straight hit here, and just short. The acceleration coming from Stephen Waugh. It's gone again. This time it's a better hit. It's going to go all the way for six. South Africa felt like they should have already beaten Australia once, and now they were letting the same man beat them again. They put on 90 when Pollock came back on. That could be out and is. Sean Pollock strikes in the 40th over. Just fencing at that one, Stephen Moore. That started to collapse as Australia tried to put on a decent total. 
Warren helping out with 18 from 24, but it was Bevan who again saved Australia. He has some of the most dramatic innings in ODI cricket. We named a position in the batting order after what he did because we didn't know what else to do with him. And in this innings, he made 57 from his last 61 balls. And he didn't quite finish the innings or close it, as he often did, but he was the last man out. Australia started the innings thinking 250 was par. They revised that to 220, but they only ended with 213. That didn't look like a lot because South Africa got off to a great start. Gibbs and Kirsten. In fact, Gibbs was still blaming himself for what happened in the previous match. Fleming to Gibbs. Lovely shot. Four to Gibbs. Oh, that's a fine shot. Another boundary to Gibbs. McGrath around the wicket to Kirsten. Chase for Lehman. He won't get there. And South Africa just picking these runs off. Rifle to Gibbs. Well, he's in really good form, Herschel Gibbs. His fourth boundary, he didn't even move. Just blocks this one and races back down the pitch for four. He finds the gap again to chase for Bevan. Has to give it up. And that's his fifth boundary. He's playing so well. Well, Herschel Gibbs, great feel he's got a bit of making up to do after dropping Steve Waugh on Sunday. And he's played really well so far. South Africa were 48 without loss in the 13th over. Remember, they're only chasing 213. Suddenly, this total looked incredibly tiny. Then, Shane Warne. Being introduced from the city end. Absolutely brilliant delivery. And look at Shane Warne. Well, this really is a tremendous delivery. Pitching outside leg and hitting the top of off. This is the ball you see from this World Cup when you close your eyes. And while you were thinking, well, it is Shane Warne, so of course he would do this. All sorts of things were going on with Warne around this time. Steve Waugh had dropped him after his return from injury hadn't gone well. And there was a sense that he might even retire. He missed his son's birth and Jadeja and Johnson had smashed him in recent games. He even got in trouble for playfully sticking his middle finger up as part of a joke with Scottish fans. This tournament had not been Shane Warne in Excelsius, but this delivery certainly was. And there's another one. Is there panic setting in, I wonder? Two wickets and two overs. When he bowled Gary Kirsten, he screamed in delight. This was a man who thought he and his team were done. And now it was all coming out. Warren added a third. A fortunate one off Cronier's toe given out caught at slip. South Africa had lost three wickets in eight balls. And Warren was doing, well, Warren things. It didn't help when Cullinan was run out by a bad call from Callis either. But South Africa did not give up. John T. Rhodes and Callis eased them back into the match with an 84-run partnership. Then South Africa did something very weird when Rhodes was out at the start of the 41st over. They sent in... Sean Pollock. Klusner was perhaps the most informed man on planet Earth, and he had been crushing the end of games. Yet it was Pollock who came in to hit the ball around. And to be fair, he did fine. He made 20 from 14, but it was certainly a weird choice. When Warren finally ended Callis's 53 from 92 balls, Klusner came out to bat. 
And what happens from here could honestly be an entire podcast series on its own. There are 31 balls remaining. South Africa need 36 runs with four wickets in hand, and they have Klusner at the crease. Lance Klusner has been the player of the tournament, and South Africa need a little bit more from him to reach the final. Coming around the wicket to Klusner. And what a stroke for four. That's his second ball. When Pollock was bowled, it was 31 runs with three wickets in hand. But their batting lineup was so deep that Mark Boucher was coming in. Sadly, the keeper never really got going. And he actually ends up taking more balls away from Klusner. Fleming around the wicket to Klusner. He's gone for it. And he's going to get away with it. He's going to get four. Last ball of the over. Fleming to Klusner. That's high in the air. Moody's underneath it. Doesn't quite make it. McGrath came on for the final overs and took Boucher's middle stump out of the ground. Now Klusner was left with the awkward-looking Steve Alworthy. South Africa needed 17 from nine balls. Then the run out. Well, he feels something's got to give. McGrath to Klusner. Now look for two. Alworthy comes back. He's struggling. That could be out. McGrath slaps the ball onto the stumps and somehow takes the bails off, largely by accident. Kluznar bludgeoned the Yorker down the ground and always wanted to, but Paul Rifle fired it back and South Africa now has one wicket in hand with 16 required from eight balls. There is absolutely no doubt that Australia should win this match. Alan Donald, the new batsman. He's not facing at the moment, though. McGrath to Kluznar. Paul Rifle. Dropped it. That could be six. We'll wait for the umpire's verdict. Well, how much drama can you get in an over? That is when Klusner received that terrible full toss from McGrath, and he heaves it down the ground. Rifle was in off the rope to stop another run out, and to my eyes at the time, and even now, it's almost like Klusner just hits it too hard for him to cap, and it bounces up from his hands and carries for six. This is not talked about a lot, but this was a huge moment, because this was a choke from Australia. To finish the over, Klusner gets a single and keeps the strike. So it is now Damien Fleming who has to bowl the last over to Lance Klusner. Last over, nine to win, Fleming to Klusner. That's a tremendous stroke for four. What power. What a player. What a World Cup he's having. A wide Yorker length ball before Klusner was one of the hardest hit for a boundary. And he just destroys Fleming's delivery. Tremendous blow again. Fleming continues to bowl from around the wicket and he goes straight again, looking for that Yorker, just missing it. But people did not hit the ball the way that Lance Klusner did back then. He's just murdering the ball from the bottom part of his bat to the offside field, who barely move. Over the last couple of balls, he has gone 6, 1, 4 and 4 to take his team to level the score. South Africa should now win this match. Fleming moves over the wicket and Australia Noah Tai takes them through to the final. They have two slips in place. Klusner kind of bites his lip as Fleming comes in. That rhythmic, low-moving run-up followed by a big leap at the crease. Not off that ball. Nearly run out. Darren Lehman with the throw. Donald was backing up too far, looking for the single. He's just backed up too far, and Lehman has missed from no more than six yards away. Fleming changes his length, and Klusner was too late to adjust. He tries a slog to the leg side, and instead, he just hits it up to mid-on. Alan Donald is completely confused, and to be honest, Australia should have run him out. 
Darren Lehman has an easy throw at the stumps, but somehow he misses. All that really needs to happen here is for South Africa to take a moment and have a chat. For Kluzner and Donald to have a clear plan of what they do for the last three balls. They go for it. And Donald's run out. And Australia are in the final. The match has been tied. What a mix-up. The wide Yorker by Fleming this time is perfect. Not even Lance Kluzner can hit it. And so he bangs it into the ground, back up the pitch, and just takes off. He happens to hit it near Mark Waugh, who is a wonderful fielder, who comes in from mid-off and intercepts it, backhanding towards the stumps. It would have been a tough run out for Australia, as they forgot to have a fielder near the stumps for this kind of occasion. So Waugh had to hit it, but his throw misses. Fleming takes it in his follow-through, but he's nowhere near the stumps. And Klusner has run. He would have made it to that end. The problem was that Donald did not. And he's so confused that he drops his bat. And when he sees Kluzner next to him, he just starts to run. But Fleming has the ball in the middle of the pitch. And in a homage to Trevor Chappell, he underarm rolls the ball along the ground to Adam Gilchrist, who takes the bails off. Donald is halfway down the wicket with no bat and no hope. Australia are in the World Cup final. South Africa fail again. No player had ever had a World Cup as good as Lance Kluzner. No one had ever changed the game in a few weeks like it felt he did. He was a behemoth blasting everyone to the boundary. But ultimately, he is remembered not for his greatness, but for perhaps his only mistake in what was nearly an unimprovable World Cup campaign. But when I think of Lance Kluzner's World Cup, I think of a one-man Spartan who made sounds I had never heard before. A few days later, Glenn McGrath will take the new ball again for Australia, this time against Pakistan in the final. Out, what a catch! Mark Waugh takes the catch, he just glided away, and that's the breakthrough by McGrath. Superb fielding, he died, he was balanced, went straight into those beautiful hands, and it's one for 21. Pakistan could not score off him, and they couldn't stay in against anyone else, especially Shane Warne. Shane Warne continuing on where he left off at Edgbaston. Great piece of bowling. Ah! A big shout, I, it was a noise. Yes, he's been given by uh, Steve Buckmore. He always waits a long time, but Adam Gilchrist was very confident. Pakistan didn't make many runs, and Australia chased them down in just over 30 overs. And hammers out, that's four runs, that's victory for the Australians. What a wonderful performance to win by eight wickets in the World Cup. And the senior players, guys like Tom Moody, Warren, Stephen Moore and Mark Moore running off the ground. What a moment for them. And Conti, the youngest member of the side at the moment. A glorious moment for Australian cricket. Australia were champions of the world for the second time. And they would remain that way for more than a decade. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version that you can get via Patreon, and there are many other extras involved with being a member over there. In fact, this show would not exist if Patreon members had not helped us at the beginning and continued to support us. Cricket history does not pay, so any help you can give will be massive, and you'll find a link in the show notes to subscribe. Remember to please review, follow, tell your friends and family, and just people that you meet in parties about our show. All of that helps us grow. Double Century episodes are written by either Abhishek Mukherjee or myself, sometimes both of us. 
and I am Jared Kimber, and this is part of my podcast network. The podcasts are overseen by Nick McCorriston, who also edits and produces Double Century. And C.S. Chawanza is our man for social media clips. If you like the Double Century podcast, on top of subscribing and supporting us, there's actually way more content like this on the Jared Kimber YouTube page.